Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your friendly pediatric infectious disease doc. And this is Praz the Smiling Sandman, making your wildest dreams come true on the air for 45 to 50 minutes a week. <laughs> of all of us, I think Praz has taken to the world of radio the best. Yeah, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. That was impressive. That, oh, I don't remember that, that one. That introduction was out of this world, and, and speaking of cosmic introductions, you know guys, every winter, and especially every new Star Wars movie, we do like to venture back into space, so this week it's going to be time for another intergalactic journal club! Yay! Intergalactic! Do we have the uh, license rights to play the Beastie Boys right now? 15 seconds is good parody, right? <laughs> intergalactic planetary! Planetary intergalactic planetary. To talk about all these planetary intergalactic <laughs> journal articles, we are joined again by friend of the show, Eleanor O'Rangers from the Space Medicine Association. Hello! Hey, hey! What's up? Beaming in from <laughs> Mars. We <laughs> contact with intelligent life on our show. Nice. Well, right now, Chicago is very similar to the icy outer reaches of, oh, we'll say Neptune. Because I, I don't want to take the easy joke. <laughs> all right. We've got a lot of Journal Club articles for you today, but they will all be intergalactic themed. We will, however, start with... One that is a bit sad and not strictly medicine. We have lost another astronaut. The first astronaut 
And the oldest astronaut. Who's the oldest astronaut now? Actually, that is Frank Borman, I believe. Okay. John Glenn, actually John Herschel Glenn Jr., died on December 8th, 2016. He was an aviator, an engineer, a astronaut, and a senator from Ohio, which is the state that has produced the most astronauts of anywhere because people really want to get away from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, as far away as possible, literally just super far away. Um, I'm excited. I actually think about John Glenn. I was thinking about him because of the new movie coming up, Hidden Figures. I'm really excited because I know that that's going to focus around the, the John Glenn mission. Now, he was one of the original yeah, Mercury was- 7 test pilots, correct? Yes, he was one of the Mercury 7. Yeah, I'll tell you, when he passed away last week, I mean, granted, you know, he's lived a long and full and very successful life, but he was the last of the Mercury 7 astronauts to pass away. So it really indeed was was not only the passing of just one of the greatest American heroes, but, you know, the end of a, of a real era. No more Mercury 7, and it was pretty sad. I, I was pretty upset about it. After doing the Mercury 7, he loved space so much that he actually fought to go back up. And he was one of the first, shall we say, senior citizens to take a trip into space as well, right? At 77 years, he rejoined another spaceflight crew? That's correct. In 1998, he went up on the space shuttle. And I remember one of the funny things that stuck out in, in some of the stuff I read about the that mission is he was commenting that the amount of, of volume or space within the space shuttle was something like 65 times as much space as he had in his little tiny Mercury capsule. So it was a very different, more liberating experience for him than when he than when he uh, rode his little capsule in 1962. Well, the loss of a, a true American hero. And I know when he went back up, he was going up as a 77-year-old to undergo a bunch of medical missions and testing but nowadays we do a lot of crowdsourcing for really everything and i guess nasa is equally hard up for funding we know there is concern that they might get their earth sciences budget cut uh, but apparently that's not the only shitty situation nasa has to figure their way out of and really no growing's not a one fantastic you guys, on NASA's own page, they have what I think is a competition that was designed for 10-year-old me. U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration is seeking, they're giving a poop challenge to the great wide scientific world. Have any of you heard of this? Not until today. Why, yes, I have. Eleanor, would you care to tell us about the space poop challenge? Oh, I, I would be delighted to discuss that. <laughs> So about a month ago, maybe, or a little over a month ago, NPR ran a story about this sort of crowdsourcing, seeking novel innovation concepts for, actually, all kidding aside, a pretty realistic issue with long-term settlement of, let's let's say, Mars. And the and that, that was the essence of the poop challenge. So what the essence of the poop challenge is is that if you're on Mars and you are happen to be walking around on the red planet exploring for, you know, extended periods of time away from your habitat, obviously you're going to be in a suit. And there's no way to really get out of the suit to do your business because basically the atmosphere on Mars is 99% carbon dioxide. So the question is whether there is any sort of 
waste management system that can be completely self-contained within the suit, basically deal with both solid and liquid wastes, including urine, menstrual fluid, and fecal material. You know, there's some other basic parameters around it that it's essentially, it's hands-free. It's, I guess, essentially, you know, pressing a button and something happens within the suit to take care of any of those unsavories um, for up to six days at a time. On Mars that say, please remember to pick up after your astronauts? No, Mars pooper scoopers. It's all within the suit. So that's really what's being put out there as a, uh, a challenge. And I think the prize money is like $30,000 to whoever is selected. If you take a look at the actual website, there are a number of actually quite a few teams that, that are vying for this uh, challenge. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what people come up with. I've kind of had a sort of crazy idea for it, but uh, not having any engineering prowess, I, I wasn't sure if it could actually happen. And I really didn't have enough time to put my own poop challenge together. Well, I absolutely want to hear your solution, Eleanor, but right before we get to that, let's briefly talk about what a breakthrough in space pooping can look like. Uh, Because in space, and guys, I'm just going to read this verbatim straight off of NASA, NASA's own website, and it's through their Hero X Challenge. In space, no one can hear you flush. This is because in space, there are no toilets. While you may go about your life mostly unaffected by this, it is more of a challenge for our brave astronauts. You know, you don't think about bravery as being, where do I relieve myself? When nature calls, how do I answer? So, current spacesuits are worn for launch and entry activities, as well as all in-space activities, to protect the crew from any unforeseen circumstances the space environment can cause. You know, galactic radiation, superpowers, aliens, those kinds of things. A crew member could find themselves in a suit for up to 10 hours at a time or up to six days if something catastrophic happens. So what's needed is a system inside a spacesuit to collect human waste for up to 144 hours and route it away from the body without the use of hands. I frankly am a little surprised that the Japanese haven't already solved this given how many animes involve one small child inside a giant robotic suit for at least a full television season. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything these days. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm actually thinking back in terms of pop culture back to Dune and the still suits that you would wear because you had to keep your water so the still suit would actually allow you to poop into the suit and then it would distill the water from there and like deposit the dry poop somewhere in a, in a container that you could throw away at some point this this is a it's a difficult problem you have to non-invasively be able to help a person evacuate and store that material away or eject it (laughs) like a little projectile uh, away from the suit until you can, you know, strip down. I I feel like I have a pretty decent solution for this. If you all remember the old Beverly Hillbillies overalls or coveralls that had the flap for the butt, Yes. Mm -hmm. On the back. (laughs) Yeah. And if you just have a double layer of insulation where, you know, you press some button in the suit and let it into the flap part, and (laughs) then you just reach around and you lower your astronaut butt flap, and that has the added bonus of allowing you to moon somebody on the moon. Uh (laughs) Aha! There you go. It'd be be awfully cold. You'd have to move pretty fast such that 
you know, the, the cold, not, I would say cold air, the coldness of space didn't uh, freeze. Well, you know, that's cause why a you have a double layer. You, <laughs> you press the button to evacuate in the first, ugh, do I have to do everything with No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I forgot about your double layer. <laughs> now, in medicine, as you guys know, we have waste management collecting systems for several different body functions. Including urine, bowel, we don't have one for menstrual cycles. But what's to stop an astronaut from just keeping an indwelling Foley or fecal management system in? Well, Foley we could do, right? We, we do that all the time. Or even for a guy, you could do a condom catheter so you didn't huh. have to s- stick something up the urethra. But do you know, I mean, there is such a thing as a rectal tube. Yeah. But... You, that's good for like liquid poop if, you know, you have diarrhea or something. But if you're having solid poop, I mean, you need to pretty much go naturally. I can't think of a way to attach any tubing <laughs> down there to, uh, unless yeah. every astronaut takes stool softeners. Well, you want to hear my, my crazy idea? If someone, if they know someone is going to be planning for an extended sortie away from the habitat, one thing I think they could do is to probably go on a low residue diet for several days and or do almost like a colonic preparation like you do for mm-hmm. a colonoscopy just to acutely flush you out. Because <laughs> I think the hardest thing to deal with is going to be the whole issue of solid yeah. waste. You know, I think there are absorbent materials and things that, that could probably be used for extended periods of time for, for urine or for, for menstrual blood. So to me, that's the, the solid waste that's going to be the issue. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called a diaper. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, uh, having a one-year-old, absolutely. He never had a friend like <laughs> so, me. So that's my idea. It's like to have sort of like a diaper genie within the suit that, would somehow be able to capture the solid waste and then twist it and seal it off and go into some sort of compartment. Kind of like at the airport and they have those on the toilet seat, you kind of wave your hand and then it, it has like a plastic around the toilet yeah, yeah, yeah. seat. And it it'll cycles around. So I'm thinking, like, yeah, so I'm kind of thinking it'd have this diaper genie that cycles around to like, I don't know, store it Mr. somewhere. Mr. Astronaut, sir, what will your pleasure be? Yeah. Let me take it. Let me take your duty. Pack it down. You ain't never had a... Oh, God! Oh, it's terrible. Oh, it's everywhere. Oh. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's... <laughs> We're going to get deep into some scatological humor here. This is bad. Well, you know, one other little anecdote where I was thinking about this whole low-residue low diet is during the Apollo 8 mission, which was the first uh, the first successful circumnavigation of the moon in 1968, Bill Anderson who was actually the lunar module pilot, so he really didn't have much to do on the mission. Anyway, he was so horrified by the prospect of having to use a bag in order to defecate during the mission that he went on a self-induced low-residue diet so he would not have to poop the entire time that he was Oh, God. Because he was so horrified. <laughs> because what they... What they would do is they would defecate into this bag. Of course, you'd have to probably have someone in weightlessness help you out there getting it getting a good seal on the back end there, do your business, but then you'd have to pour chemicals into the bag, seal it up and kind of squish it around and store it in a plastic container and basically save it so that it could be analyzed when when the astronauts got back to Earth. And that was just like, 
a non-starter for Bill Anderson. Wow. That's the worst fanny pack ever. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. Folks, this competition is still open until December 20th. So by the time this episode airs, you will have lost your chance. And hopefully you remembered to send to the government involved with exploring new frontiers your idea for how to deal with our cosmic poop. <laughs> I wonder what the chances are that they'll actually find a solution. Proz, it's NASA. They'll always find a solution. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a... Now, there is another story or, or recent advancement that, while less funny, is equally important for long-term space travel. So we've, we've talked about what comes out at one end, but a story that we've mentioned in a few previous episodes is a lot of astronauts have vision problems. And, you know, we always joke about in space, no one can hear you do anything. But apparently, spend long enough in space and you won't be able to see for beans. Eleanor, if you could give us a little bit of background on this, and then we'll launch into the newest theory as to why it might be. Probably approaching about 10 years ago. Uh, there started to be reports of astronauts uh, on the shuttle and then on the space station coming back to, to Earth and that their visual acuity had actually deteriorated and never exactly quite went back to normal. So this ultimately prompted uh, NASA to start to try to investigate this. The initial suggestion, um, they were actually doing spinal taps, believe it or not, right after people came back to Earth. And the opening pressure with those spinal taps was was elevated. It was somewhat dismissed at the time because, you know, there was a lot of, well, they just came back to Earth. We don't, you know, these, we don't know if something else could be going on to contribute to that. But I thought um, global entry was bad when I came back in from foreign trips. You know, can you unpack your bag? Can you do this? No. Welcome to planet Earth. Here's a needle in your back. (laughs) Here's a needle in your back. Oh, boy. Yeah, fantastic. So on top of that, they also did some uh, MRI of the the head and the of the eye, and pretty disturbingly, they actually discovered that in some of these people that had these ocular changes, there was actually evidence of optic disc flattening. So basically, the rear of the eyeball was getting squashed, and in addition, the um, optic nerve was getting, it was not straight. It was starting to kink like a garden. Oh, okay. So, that makes, that yeah, makes anatomical so. sense. But, Eleanor, was there any reason why they weren't getting any other signs of elevated intracranial pressure like headaches? or? Uh, there is a cephalid uh, flow of fluid in general when you go into space. You, basically, you have a redistribution of bodily fluid from the lower extremities to more equal distribution throughout the body. A very common manifestation of that is most astronauts do feel like they have a head cold. Oh, okay. They actually um, were up there with kind of a chronic headache like picture, but not the acute headache that we think of when we have any kind of increased intracranial pressure here on Earth. Not that I'm aware of that I can recall from anything I've read that there, there was any sort of other manifestation. Okay. There was a suggestion that people who were re- repeat space flyers, possibly males, I believe, but it was definitely people who flew longer and who had had multiple flights tended to, have it, tended to, tended to be at higher risk. The other interesting thing that was noticed was for a period of time, 
there was an experimental piece of exercise equipment being used, basically doing mass-related exercise to try to mitigate bone and muscle wasting that occurs, another huge problem, with long-duration spaceflight. And this particular machine with lifting mass, I and mean, we're not lifting weight, so to speak, but lifting mass, was able to almost, I think, completely arrest any of the bone and muscle wasting. So there was excitement about about this as a real countermeasure to bone and muscle loss in, in space. However, the flip side of that is the people that were doing these doing the work with this machine tended to have more of these eye issues, and they weren't completely going away when they when these astronauts would come back to Earth. So obviously, increasing level of concern about these issues because particularly if they're seeing these morphologic issues with the optic nerve and the disc flattening, I mean, geez, you know, chronic exposure to that, how, you know, it would be horrible if you end up having these astronauts go blind as a yeah, now, Aside from our love of blinding astronauts, you know, <laughs> the reason this is important to work on is in six months, you know, the astronauts came originally from the Air Force. So this was a branch of the military known for their spectacular eyesight. And in just six months, these were men who had 20-20 vision going to 2100. And very few astronauts have spent more than a full year in space. And even a trip to and from Mars is at least 18 months. Well, if it's six months, you've already gone to 2100. By the time you land on Mars, you could be functionally blind, making it even more important to know what you're doing with your space poop. So anyway, there have been a lot of theories about why this is occurring. The one that's been sort of promulgated the most by NASA as well, it must obviously, obviously be increased intracranial pressure, increased interstitial fluid pressure, pressing on the optic nerve, and so forth. Some eye experts were not completely convinced that that was the case because some of the some of the findings, such as choroidal folding that was occurring in the retina, was not necessarily consistent with an increased uh, intracranial pressure like you see here on Earth. So there was kind of, I think, two schools of thought. One was, oh, it's all about intracranial pressure, and the other was, well, maybe, but maybe there's something else going on. So fast forward to just a couple weeks ago, there was an imaging conference in Chicago, and there was a very intriguing abstract. Now, granted, this has not been peer-reviewed yet. We're going to wait for the full manuscript. But there was a very intriguing abstract presented from a group from Miami, I believe it was, that actually looked at cerebral spinal fluid in space and whether there was an association with this visual impairment that's been reported. So basically what was done in this in this study, MRIs of the brains before and after space flight, and this was in seven astronauts that had been on the space station and ones that were on the space shuttle. And they were basically, you know, compared and they all had this evidence of the uh, the eye findings like I had mentioned. What was interesting is that the longer duration astronauts, so the ones like on the space station, had more post flight increases and in flattening of the of the back of the eyeball. And in addition, they also took a look at CSF volume, ventricular volume, and also looking at brain tissue interstitial fluid volume with these MRIs that were conducted. And basically what they found was that the tissue itself, there was no difference in volume in any of these groups, but people that had larger ocular changes um, were associated with greater changes in intraorbital and intracranial CSF volume, but again, not with interstitial volume. So 
it seemed to suggest that there's a higher amount of CSF that is present in the CNS. Maybe it's being overproduced. Maybe there's some sort of dysregulation of CSF turnover in microgravity and that it's actually CSF, not like just the cephalid fluid shift in general that may be causing this uh, this issue. So it's very intriguing because that really hasn't been looked at. Then the questions. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's going to be, what do you do about it? There's a few different ways to treat what the long term would be a shunt. One thing we often do when we have patients and we're worried about spinal cord ischemia, we put relatively less invasive drains. It's not the same as putting a needle in someone's brain as much as there's a catheter in the back, not too much different from an epidural, that we could then use to relieve CSF loads from time to time. What you mentioned that I found interesting, you said there was a positional change in the back of the eye, right? The back of the eye is a little bit flatter. We've noticed in the operating room is that patients who tend to be put in the prone position, flat, left that way for several hours and have increased amounts of fluids during surgery, they tend to develop optic neuritis, very similar to what you're describing in astronauts. And one of the big risk factors is being face down. Now in space where there's no gravity, and the CSF naturally progresses upwards, the um, risk factor seems to be the opposite. If you lie flat with your face up, that seems to be putting more pressure in the eye. Maybe staying face down for as long as possible would relieve that pressure. I don't know. Although, basically, think of it like standing on your head when you're in space. Yeah. That's really what's happening. So, I don't, yeah, I don't know, but that's really interesting that's, uh, about the neuritis. And I don't think anyone's ever talked about that, any correlation with, with that in, uh, in yeah, space. Positioning like. may help. I don't know. And yeah, so I'm I'm glad you were able to comment on that, Pros, because you certainly deal a lot more with some of these longer-term treatments. Now we've looked at two long-term problems of the astronauts, vision and, well, the, we'll say politely, the digestive system. <laughs> but there's a lot of problems with, you know, long-term flights, especially as we start looking further and further out to Mars and a couple of the ones now if you'd like a little talk about how we're going to keep people journeying even further than Mars which remember is 18 months away we still haven't quite perfected cryogenics or deep freezing yet 
um, aside from Walt Disney, who, as we all know, is frozen somewhere deep under Orlando. But well, it's supposed to be just his head, right, isn't it? Right, isn't it just, just his head? head. <laughs> um, and if you'd like to know more about why cryogenics isn't quite a viable option for us yet, please, I refer you to our most recent episode on frostbite from just a few weeks ago. And uh, that ought to tell you everything you need to know about why you're not climbing into one of those adjustment vacuum tubes at the moment. However, another issue that we have to deal with is that we can't even trust, so we can't trust our eyes, we can't trust our digestive system, we can't even trust our own hearts or bacteria in space. And these are a couple things that I know we've talked about before, but... Eleanor, I believe you had mentioned even being in space just increases your risks for everything, for heart attacks, for radiation, and even the bacteria in your gut becomes supercharged. Uh, that, yeah, I think that's a, a little bit of a simplified explanation. But, yeah, I, I don't know I don't know cardiovascularly if there is truly an increase in, in MI. There was... There was some data presented earlier this year, an, an analysis that was heavily criticized, suggesting that um, over time, I think it was Apollo astronauts and had a higher um, incidence of, of MI and CAD, but th there may be some other things afoot with that. So I'm not sure if exposure to spaceflight itself may, may cause that, although there is one person uh, who's put forward a theory that uh, fluid shifts may also induce potassium and magnesium shifts, which may also predispose astronauts to arrhythmia, interestingly enough. But um, but with regards to the whole bacteria question, yeah, that's, uh, that's another very intriguing issue <coughs> on multiple fronts. What seems to be emerging with uh, a number of studies been done, particularly with salmonella in the last several years, um, it's believed that in microgravity, the environment in which these bugs may be cultured in, in uh, weightlessness, they may be exposed to what, what they say is low shear volume. In other words, you know, the fluid around them is, is relatively calm, which is analogous to like the gut and some other areas of the body which are prone to infection here on Earth. And these little microorganisms, because they're not exposed to higher shear stresses, which apparently these microbes can sense and that can modulate their growth patterns. The lower shear stress almost kind of disinhibits them and allows these bugs to grow, you know, uninhibited and may become actually more virulent in space. We know that salmonella actually becomes more virulent. There was some earlier data many years ago from data with E. coli and with Staph aureus suggesting that if you, met, you look at MICs, like to pretty commonly used antibiotics, that they may be sensitive to, that the MICs tended to shift to greater resistance levels. If I recall the data from E. coli, E. coli just tended to proliferate more. Staph aureus, I think, ended up getting a, a thicker cell wall. So that was kind of its response to my wow. So the bottom line, bottom line is there's some very interesting stuff that happens to these bugs react to microgravity just like the human body does. I mean, they're, they're a biologic system, albeit a very simple one, but they undergo some changes as well. And the aha, the human implication, obviously, is that if we, you know, have these bugs up there with us and we're what's with us on Earth, we're going to bring Absolutely. them up. Absolutely. They're part of um, our natural microbiome. Exactly. That they, they could become more virulent. So then the question is, well, my gosh, how are you going to treat them in space? Will 
if you're carrying antibiotics with you well, and provided the antibiotics aren't degrading from radiation exposure, are you going to have enough to treat someone up there? So there are a lot of interesting things that this raises. Would that lead to a um, whole new branch of space vaccines, just like you're recommended to get, you know, yellow fever vaccines if you go to certain parts of the world or hepatitis vaccines and others? Does that mean if we have people going for what we know are going to be long-term in space, will they have to get some kind, potentially, of vaccine for bacteria that we know to be particularly virulent in the outer reaches of the Milky Way. I don't know. I mean, I think that's certainly a possibility. I know years ago, Michael Collins wrote a really wonderful book about traveling. If I recall, it was traveling to Mars. And in, I remember uh, one of the things that kind of blew me away in reading it for the first time, all the astronauts had to have appendectomies. Really? <laughs> and I think... <laughs> okay. I think adventures, you know, if you think about it, what, you know, obviously, if you have one of these serious medical events, I mean, that, that could certainly cost you your mission if you can't, you know, adequately treat it. I mean, you've probably seen the movie Castaway when Tom Hanks, you know, has the abscess from his, his tooth that he, he had delayed getting. Sure, sure. And yeah. So that, you know, a clear example of where that, where that implication is. But like with appendectomy, there, there, is, there is actually one famous case, one of my all time favorite horror stories of a Russian physician who was doing a winter over in Antarctica on a Russian station down there. I think it was in, I don't know, it was in the 70s or 80s. It was a while ago. But basically, when he got down there, he started twinging and he realized, oh my gosh, I've got appendicitis. Well, there's no way that you can like get this guy no, out no, of No, no, you're there done. Right you're absolutely done. Yeah. You're done. I mean, you can't. So he ended up having to do his own appendectomy. Yeah, I heard about this guy. Famous photograph of him actually kind of, you know, bent upwards in the in bed with, he had, like, rigged up all these mirrors so that he could see, and he did his own incision. Apparently, he, like, passed out a couple times from the pain, but he surgerized himself, and the guy had basically a benign post-operative course and was back, like, up and walking around in, like, three wow. days. I'm like, wow. The, most the, only reason, ever heard. the only reason I know who you're talking about, Eleanor, is because this is also a personal hero of one of our other hosts, Dr. Susanna. This is, I think, her role model as a surgeon, Dr. Leonid Rogozov. And so Dr. Susanna took a page out of his book and cut a larvae out of her head. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. No, wow. she, no she, she had a bot fly infection. She had myiasis. Uh, yeah, and, and so just a little burrowing insect, and she decided to shoot herself up with some lidocaine. Wow. I'm not telling secrets out of school, by the way. This is on our episode. If you guys haven't heard this, go ahead and go back to our episode with Dr. Susanna. I, I think it was one, it's it's parasites lost or it might have been two tickets to parasites. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. gonna have to listen oh, to that Oh, it's one. a beautiful tale of both travel and medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Self promotion. <laughs> so now I know in the past we've we've talked about you know how bacteria are a little bit different in space, and I know you've mentioned before that the elderly actually probably make the best astronauts given a lot of the physiologic changes. And also, I just realized another solution to the space poop challenge would be uh, if you're telling me they forced everybody to get appendectomies, then we just get a whole bunch of elderly astronauts and give everybody a colostomy, and the problem has solved itself. Nice. 
but <laughs> me, of course, being a little external colon, and you push almost through your belly button <laughs> that hangs outside of your body. So it's I, always an external collecting system. I feel like, Josh, you just came up with the solution because Eleanor was talking to us about, you know, using surgery to remove some of our native microbiota for for the appendectomy. So, so you were just thinking of other surgical techniques you could throw in there. Absolutely. And, other, <laughs> and speaking of appendages that could be removed, how do you feel about uh, children in space? Uh, <laughs> We've we've talked about this before, right, Eleanor? We've we've discussed a little bit about how they respond in terms of their personality traits, and you know, sometimes you know, just kind of having a youthful nature there is kind of a good thing. Um, I, I will tell you. So we've discussed a couple of things right now. Number one, uh, the blindness issue. If you take a baby into space, you really can't increase the intracranial pressure that much in order to cause this type of blindness because their skulls are still soft. So you're talking about a less than one year old, but that would be a huge proposition and you'd have a bunch of other problems. But as far as infection. Eleanor, I think we have a little bit of an easier time as long as you already know what the dosing is for a smaller kid, a prepubescent kid. You have smaller volume. You usually have less issues with things like body fat problems and things like that. So, you 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 know, you in terms of redistributing mass and these types of things. So, that's certainly an advantage. And the other little advantage there is that kids of a certain age, if you're talking about, you know, pre-20 year olds, they're a little bit less susceptible and they're fully vaccinated and they're a little bit less susceptible to the diseases that you get in older age, the the, the infections that you get in, later on in life. It's, it's a thought. It's, it's an idea. But it's definitely not you, – you have as many problems to deal with on kind of the, the Lee side <laughs> as you do with adults already knowing what mostly adult physiology is all about. I, I think the issue, though, I know that children and gestation is kind of – I think you know there are a couple articles that appeared in the lay press pretty recently – and I think some of that is, is piggybacking on the whole interest in, in Mars colonization. And yeah, I mean, obviously, if we ever do make it off planet and establish colonies elsewhere, children will eventually be born. I think the reality, however, is that at least in a microgravity environment, we're, we have no idea whether the individuals could successfully gestate. Um, we know some limited animal studies have suggested that that may not be possible, or if if animals like mice or rats gestate, the offspring may not survive because they just are floating around and can't latch on right. to mom. <laughs> All, All kinds, kinds of problems. Impregnation would probably be Yeah, so that may be, of course, that's small animals. You know, that may be a little different for humans. But the other issue is, I mean, at least right now, we have a lot of problems trying to figure out how to you know, protect ourselves from radiation and shielding on spacecraft without making them inordinately heavy. You know, God knows what... I would assume children may be more susceptible to radiation exposure than 
than, for example, the elderly. Sure. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. you know, or you may be willing to, to let them take a risk with ra- radiation exposure because their average lifespan is going to be much shorter, uh, presumably, than the younger younger folks. But, yeah, I think there's still a lot of questions. And then we, we don't know either on another planet if it's a partial gravity environment. Other interesting thought is, okay, let's say you could actually have a child successfully born and raised on Mars. Well, Mars's gravity is about 40% of what Earth is. Would that child be able to survive if she or he went back to Earth into a one G? Right, and we're talking about Uh, bone deterioration, muscle deterioration. They don't get to develop into adulthood with normal gravity. Could be so. so There are a lot of really. Or you could say that Mars gravity isn't normal gravity. <laughs> you earthist. I'm I'm sorry. I'm being very earthist and I, I apologize. You're absolutely right. I shouldn't be so earthist. <laughs> <laughs> or or what? We're we're all from Terra. Would that make us terrorists? <laughs> get out of here. Just get <laughs> That's that's been travel medicine for this week, people. <laughs> Sign shine off. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> so, but it, it does bring up a lot of interesting points, puns aside. Now, Praz, I know we've brought you in new to this to this space world, and while Santosh and I are taking a number of our questions for granted, having had them before, is there anything you're wondering about space medicine that you would like to ask before we do wrap up? I've learned a lot over the course of this episode. A lot of things that I thought were counterintuitive, to be honest. The article we did before that was talking about bacteria growing, becoming more virulent. I actually expected the opposite. I figured being in an environment like space where there is no oxygen, an environment that's not conducive to life, I thought if anything that would make people less susceptible or less prone to infections because bacteria would be less powerful, but clearly that's not the case. I never considered the implications of sending children into space, how it would affect development, everything else that we've just discussed, the ethical qualms. I mean, it's just a very different frontier. It's something that most people aren't used to thinking about. Or There's a lot more to it than meets the eye. And Oh, yeah. Well, we have been fortunate enough to do every season and... You guys, this is pretty exciting. We're coming up on our 100th episode, which will take place shortly after the new year. And at least a good five or six of those are space-related, including our episodes on the medicine of Star Wars. So all you Rogue One fans, after you've gone and seen the movie, search back through our backlog and learn how medical droids and space cosmic goo and a whole bunch of the other imperial techniques work out. And then come to these episodes to learn how real astronauts do it. Oh yeah. (laughs) We usually do like to close out with at least one travel story. So, Eleanor, I know you and I have been jaunting all about the country the last few weeks. Where have you most recently traveled that you would recommend somebody giving a glance to? Most of my time is usually in the rear of a Southwest Airlines plane going between Chicago and Baltimore, which I I don't think I would strongly recommend uh, on a regular basis. I I would say back in September when I was on vacation, I was out in the uh, Southwest. Oh, let's see. One of the coolest things I did this time was I actually had a chance to walk through Antelope Canyon, which is one of those slot canyons. 
it's a very easy walk. It's all flat terrain within the within the slot canyon. So that was a lot of fun. And also my, my friend that I was traveling with, we did the whole 17-mile dirt off-road drive uh, in Monument Valley. So that was also quite wonderful. And I was thinking I was on Mars the entire time I was there because of all the red rocks that were immersed in. <laughs> uh, it's quite beautiful. In fact, we use desertscapes here on Earth in order to simulate Mars for future astronauts, right? We've had a couple of simulations here for... Uh, I believe uh, uh, future astronauts who stay something like six months or a year out in the desert and in a makeshift habitat. Which I believe is called a biodome. Biodome. No, no, actually it isn't the biodome. No, 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 it isn't the biodome. Eleanor, what is it? Yeah, well, it's actually the, well, one is the biosphere, which was outside of um, Tucson. That was a whole separate project, which would be very interesting to talk about sometime, what they what they found about that and that's whole adventure but now the mars society for a number of years has run both an arctic research station right above i think or close to the arctic circle in canada and uh also a desert research station near hanksville utah if you've ever been out towards going out towards canyonlands arches national park that part of uh southeastern utah and they have a habitat set up there like a mars habitat and as part of the simulation, the individuals participating in the sim have to suit up when they go outside. So uh, they try to make it as a realistic scenario as uh, as possible. So, yeah, they've done that for a number of years. They've gotten pretty sophisticated with some of the uh, quote-unquote missions that they've done, including a couple of medical missions. There's a lady by the name of uh, Susan Jewell, who's a physician. She's actually out in California, and she actually has been involved with a number of medical simulations out there, which has been pretty interesting. Um, like more information on this, you can check out either Mission to Mars by Michael Collins or Packing for Mars by Mary Roach, which take two very different approaches to talking about the same material we have covered today. So everyone, I want you to spend the next 24 to 48 hours thinking about how you would improve pooping in space. <laughs> and, and, and actually, well, no, if you have an engineering background or a biomedical engineering background, any type of thing where you've made medical devices, especially for evacuation, uh, yeah, jump on the website, actually. Just look up Pooping in Space, NASA, and there's a place where you can enter your idea and talk to others who are like-minded. Granted, it'll be too late. The competition will be over, but I'm sure they'll appreciate your. <laughs> but never stop submitting. We no. want to hear. We want to hear your stories. And let's cut to our outro spiel, folks. It has been fun. Please join us next week for yet another topic on travel, on medicine, on maybe a little bit of everything. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the help. <laughs> With a lot of help from 
all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.